Last Sunday, we entered into the final week of Jesus' life here on earth before he was crucified. Uh, he and his disciples have set up temporary base in the village of Bethany, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And from there, they travel daily into Jerusalem and back. And the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead uh, combined with the whole nation gearing up for the Passover celebration has created a big stirring amongst the people. Uh, the first day of Jesus arriving into Jerusalem, the crowd declared him as king and as, as Messiah. It, yet there's also a heaviness in the air. As Jesus cursed a, a fruitless fig tree and then went into the temple and cleared out a fruitless temple. And there in those circumstances, he reminded his disciples, uh, there in the midst of all that looming darkness, that they were to have faith in God. And the author John mentions how some of the religious leaders uh, reacted to all this hubbub encircling Jesus. He says in John 12, 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. And they were right, the, the world was going after him. Not just the Jews, but, but others, other nations. And in the verses that, that follow, we'll see that some from Greece were approaching Jesus desiring to see him and the way that Jesus responds to them at first glance seems just a little odd but from his response we're going to glean three truths that will help us in our journey as we follow Jesus in his example of sacrifice let's look at the passage together John 12 verse 20 now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast these then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These Greeks appear to have accepted the God of Israel. Um, and they would have been a small minority at this point in history amongst the other Greeks who were um, involved in pagan worship associated with Greek gods and Greek mythology. I believe they approached the disciples with honest intent, truly seeking to, to meet this man who had just been declared king and Messiah, uh, the one who had just raised this man Lazarus from the dead. They approached Philip in verse 21, and John gives us the detail that Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which is perhaps the very reason the Greeks approached him. Uh, Bethsaida of Galilee is is close to the Greek area of the Decapolis on the eastern side of the Galilee. And maybe they knew Philip, or they had picked up on his accent as they heard him speaking, or maybe they heard his name spoken, uh, being that Philip was a Greek name. The, other only, the, the only other Greek names uh, amongst the 12 apostles were uh, Peter and Andrew. Now, these all were considered as Jewish men, but... Maybe they had family ties to Greeks. Uh, maybe they'd spent some time working and living in the Decapolis region amongst the Greeks. Um, somehow they had some kind of connection. Um, it would appear they'd have some kind of connection due to their names. Um, actually, even 100 years earlier, 
the Greeks, uh, before the Romans had invaded Israel, uh, they had occupied and ruled the land there. Um, so their reach, their influence was probably a lot wider spread than we even imagine. Um, so in verse 22, we see that Andrew, uh, uh, Philip went to Andrew first before approaching Jesus. Uh, maybe there was some hes hesitancy behind Philip. Uh, perhaps Philip wanted to bring in Andrew uh, if our assumption is correct, that he also had some connection to the Greeks, and uh, perhaps they felt that the two of them to, together were stronger in vouching for the Greeks. Uh, they felt like they were more likely to persuade Jesus to engage with these Greek men. Now, at first glance, it would seem that Jesus completely ignores Philip and Andrew's request. Uh, but ignoring would definitely seem out of character for Jesus, right? Uh, I personally have the feeling that whether the Greeks were within earshot of Jesus' response or not, either way, I believe his answer was for them. It, his answer, I believe, directly answered the questions and thoughts of these men. Let's look at his answer again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's as if Jesus had responded, yes, they are right in seeking me, and many more will as well. I, I will serve as the glorious king of Israel. My glory will be fruitful, my reign will be multiplied. I will also be the the king of Greece, and king of every other nation in the world. But in order to be that king, I must first lay down my life. And those who want to be with me and be a part of my kingdom must do the same. Here we have two different people, groups, and cultures, uh, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews were the ones who, who had the perceived more direct and authentic right to access God and his kingdom. And, and the Greeks, as outsiders, um, who in the past, and probably were still to this point in time, were considered enemies of the Jews. And Jesus says that this impossible unity will be forged through sacrifice. Jesus was going to lead the way through his life sacrifice on the cross. And unto all others who wanted him to be their, his king, to all others who wanted him as king, whether Jew, Greek, American or any other nationality, they too would die to themselves. They would die to their own personal desires, uh, preferences, culture, expectations, in order to be with him and to be honored by God the Father. A grain of wheat, or any other seed for that matter, can remain intact and preserved if it's isolated and in cool, dry storage. But when it's planted, when it's dropped into the ground, there are certain conditions that begin to affect it, that trigger the new life, uh, the dampness of the soil, the, the warmth of the soil, the, the darkness of the soil. What strange conditions, right? How many of us like to hang out in, in damp, warm, wet places? I, I like warmth, but you combine that with wet and dark and it's just sticky and gross, right? Jesus was comparing his life to a, a grain, a piece of, a seed of, a grain of wheat falling to the earth. And if we were to compare our lives to a grain of wheat falling into the ground, 
I believe most of us would prefer to remain isolated in cool, dry storage, right? Preserved, unchanged, not bothered. But Jesus is saying there's life out there that he wants for us that is only accessed through temporary states of discomfort. Not only does he want it for us, and not only does it lead to a better life, but through the way scripture reads, it appears that living a life of sacrifice is actually a prerequisite to inheriting eternal life. And here's our first truth that we must understand in our journey of following Jesus and sacrifice. It's that sacrifice is life-giving. This isn't a newly presented concept that Jesus is teaching here. For over a thousand years prior, sacrifice and offerings to the Lord were made regularly in order that a sinful people might remain living in the presence of a holy God. During the days of Moses, God used to meet with Moses in the tent of meeting. And at that entrance of that tent of meeting was uh, an altar for sacrifice was, where, where blood was sprinkled and, and the offering was burnt up. Death and sacrifice were at the very entrance to God's presence. Even once the temple was constructed, it was the same. There was a, a bloody altar right at the front entrance to the, the holy place, which led into the holy of holies, where God would be encountered. You could only get to where God was by first offering the right sacrifice. You had to let go of things in the physical life in order to grab a hold of things in the spiritual life. The same principle is true today. We enter into God's presence, his blessing, his truth, not through the sacrifice of bulls and lambs, sheep, doves on an altar, but we enter into God's presence through the sacrifice of a bleeding man named Jesus on a cross. And he calls us to join him up on that cross through this, as a sacrifice. Just days later, he would be mounted to the cross and then buried in a tomb. And if he had remained in that tomb, then his calling to, to follow him would have gone down in history as one of the most sick, demented, and deranged utterances of all time. But he proved himself worthy of being followed. What he said was true. His sacrifice brought fruit and glory and put eternity within reach of mankind. He rose again, paving the way for people of all nations to rise again, to experience new life in him here on earth and for all eternity. You know, we all experience sacrifice as we walk through life. Uh, there's a certain giving up of things as we uh, get married or when we start a new job or when we have kids or even as we age and, and life changes. We even benefit from the sacrifice of others, those who raised us, spouses, friends, family members, military. And unless you're vegan, even animals who give of their lives so that we might eat and become better. The whole concept behind sacrifice is that it brings life and betterment to others. And if we are Jesus' followers and we believe his words, then I believe we can reassure that even our sacrifice brings life and betterment to ourselves. But the reality is, even in knowing the life and betterment achieved through sacrifice, it's still not an easy thing to do. Even as Jesus knew the incredible outcome of his sacrifice, what it would lead to, even as he knew that he would rise back to life and, and open up life for millions after him, 
As bright as that future looked, it was still terrifying. It was hard. It was uncomfortable. Look at what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? His statement leads us to our, our second truth. That is that sacrifice is troubling. Jesus, God in the flesh, is here troubled. He's saddened in anguish and, and turmoil. His stomach has butterflies. He's doing the right thing, the best thing, the greatest thing he could possibly do, and yet his soul is troubled. For some reason, I think we as believers, we, we often feel that we want to feel good about doing the right thing. We're accustomed to, if it's right, it'll feel right. We don't like feeling uncomfortable. Uh, we don't like being in the wet, the warm, and the dark. Uh, we don't like change. We, we prefer our spiritual and our physical realms to stay close to each other, moving together. Um, in other words, we don't want to, to gain spiritually if it means losing something physically. Uh, we're okay with gaining spiritually if, it, if our physical reality stays the same. Uh, even better yet, we, we would like our, our spiritual reality to, to rise and gain and our physical level to rise and gain. Yeah, sure, I'll take Jesus, more of him too, and, and perhaps some more wealth and health and, and prosperity and power too. But it doesn't always work that way. Yes, sometimes we know his will by the, the joy and the peace in our hearts. But sometimes decisions are made, sacrifices are made with great trembling in our hands and in our hearts, sensing him calling us to do something that's different and uncomfortable and perhaps even painful. It, if Jesus wasn't spared the, the troubling in his soul and he was perfect, then we shouldn't expect to be spared the troubling in our soul at times. That's a scary thought, right? I mean, how do we walk through that? How do we unpack these negative emotions like Jesus was experiencing here? How did he reconcile his emotions? Look at the last sentence of verse 27. It begins with the word, but. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. I feel like saying, Father, save me from this hour, but, and that but leads us to the answer, for this purpose I came to this hour for this purpose how did Jesus get through the dark time of a troubled soul by recognizing purpose your sacrifice you're doing the right thing you're following Jesus even when it hurts your pain is not without purpose and here's our third truth sacrifice is purposeful What's the specific purpose that Jesus is referring to here in verse 27? Well, I, I think he's already been answering that question from the very beginning of his response to the Greeks, back in verse 23. His purpose is to be glorified, verse 23. His purpose is to bear fruit, verse 24. His purpose is to enable the world to keep life unto life eternal, verse 25. His purpose is to make a way for his servants to be with him and honored by the Father, verse 26. And ultimately, all these are wrapped up in the purpose of bringing glory to the Father's name, verse 28. 
Father, glorify your name. In looking at this passage, I can't imagine a, a better or motivation, um, a better purpose to lead us in any sacrifice or even life decision through any pain or through any spiritual growth. In fact, Jesus' purpose list here is probably a good list to, to personalize even if you're not experiencing any time of troubling sacrifice. It would be a pretty good life purpose statement in general to adopt uh, for anyone who has ever asked, what is the meaning of life? Or what does God want me to do? Here it is. Your purpose is to also one day be glorified as we'll receive new bodies after living a life of glorifying Jesus. Your purpose is to show the world how to, to keep life unto life eternal. Your purpose is to bear fruit. Your purpose is to be with Jesus and to be honored by the Father. Your purpose ultimately in all of this is to glorify the Father's name. And shouldn't our church be moving towards the same purposes? Reminding ourselves that as God's universal church, we are purposed to be glorified in Christ. That we are to be one unified, beautiful body of believers as the very bride of Christ. Our purpose is to bear fruit until that day. We exist in order to let the world know that there is a way to keep life, life eternal. We are to be with Jesus, serving alongside him, wherever he is working, and God will honor us in that action. Our purpose is to glorify the Father's name, Yahweh, the Lord God, the Lord Creator God, revealed in, to mankind through his son Jesus. Verse 28 then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus being lifted up on the cross was the means by which all people could then be drawn into right relationship with he and God the Father. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. You know, the crowd expected to hold on to their newly crowned king. They didn't want him to be lifted up in a way anywhere. They had proclaimed him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, heir to David's throne. But they didn't understand Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. The people would later, actually very soon, understand what he meant by lifted up on the cross. They would very soon understand his self-given title explained through his resurrection as he would reveal to the world him being God in the form of a man, son of man. Yes, their questions would be soon answered, but the question that needed to be answered right then and there was, will you walk in and believe in him as the light? He challenged them to trust in him then and there, knowing that future circumstances would make it that much more difficult 
to trust. The timing was critical. The whole timing in this whole conversation was actually super critical. I want to point out some of the timing bread trail crumbs along the way that the author John has been showing us through his account. John chapter 2, remember the wedding of Cana. When they ran out of wine, how did Jesus respond? He said, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers encouraged him to make a public entrance at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. And Jesus responded, my time is not yet here. Jesus did arrive to that feast and the, the religious leaders tried to seize him, but no man could lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, after forgiving the woman caught in adultery, he began teaching again in the temple and no one seized him. Why? because his hour had not yet come. But now look at the change in timing. What does Jesus say at the beginning of his answer to the Greeks in verse 23? The hour has come. And then at the end of his conversation, verse 35 and 36, it's as if he says, walk now while you have the light. The timing is now. The path is clear. I have laid out before you the path. Follow me in my sacrifice. Come, believe in me and become one of my own. I want to ask you, what might the Lord be asking you to sacrifice? What might he be calling you to to follow him in in a lifestyle of sacrifice? I I want us to bow our heads and to consider that for a moment. What does that look like? How do, we, how do we give of what we've been given? How do we surrender? How do we follow Jesus in this? His words are strong. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I want us to search our hearts and ask How do we follow? How do we personally follow Jesus in this? What does that mean? What does that look like? What would he have us do? No matter where you're calling us, no matter what you're asking us to do, may we follow Jesus. Realizing it might be uncomfortable at times. We might get ridiculed amongst friends talking about you and your kingdom. It might be difficult to raise our kids differently. We might be outcasted on the job site for not participating in certain things. The way our society is headed, uh, who knows, we might very well be persecuted for standing true to the standard of God's word. as uncomfortable as it might be, no matter what you're calling us to do, may we be obedient. Even if our heart is troubled, may we be reassured that even Jesus' heart was troubled. And may we realize that through sacrifice, you work and and life multiplies and blessing and, and good happens to others and it even happens to ourselves. 
Grow us as your people. Teach us, Father, how to lay down our lives for others and for you and to follow you wholeheartedly and be obedient in every way. Lord, we thank you for your great example. Show us how to follow you in that, Lord. We thank you for this time, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.